Okay, on we march, and we need to pray. All right, Lord Jesus, please, please come down through the power of the Holy Spirit. Give us insight into your word today. We are here on, on the edge of our seats, Church at the Red Door. We want to hear what your Spirit says to the church. Lord, I am in such an imperfect vessel to do this. But I humbly come before you as a sinner saved by grace. Would you speak through me today, through your word? Lord, uh, I am, we need your help. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So when I was growing up, uh, Sesame Street. So hopefully some of you have heard. I don't, we, don't, we have a little bit over the demographic. Maybe you're a little bit before Sesame Street. But when I grew up, it was all about Sesame Street. And one of the things I learned, I kind of learned to read. I think a lot of our uh, days, and of course I watched Mr. Rogers, and I watched all these other children's programs. And I said that to my kids uh, the other day, and they're like, who, what? You know, and my grandson's, my grandson, Emerson, he's like Paw Patrol. I don't even know what he's saying, Paw Patrol. I don't even know what that is. But Sesame Street was on there, and it's the puppets and all that. And then it, but there was one thing that was very powerful, and it was which one of these is not like the other. Which one of these just doesn't belong? And they played that, and that was something that they constantly played. So they'd have a little, you know, little picture, and there'd be a, something round, something round, something round, something not round. Oh, this one doesn't belong here. Which one of these is not like the other? What scientists call that is pattern detection, okay? So when we have, or pattern recognition, Listen to this. One of the most uh, erudite guys, in fact, I think some suggested that in the 20th century he would be a top 15 world changer. He's a futurist, a guy by the name of Ray Kurzweil. And he actually prognosticated based on the math where we would be technologically based on transistors and the exponential growth of knowledge through, through the advancement of technology. And now we hear about it all the time with artificial intelligence. He had actually predicted back in the 80s that there would, he actually predicted the internet, number one, because there was, I think, a thousand scientists that first were interconnected trying to grab all their information and then have it coalesce into one place. And so they could, you know, the growth would be quicker rather than the old days, some guy sitting alone in his, in his, in his lab writing things out, and then maybe the next generation say, oh, yeah, he did this, and then they build. But everything builds on itself. And now with the Internet, not only do you have the horrors of what I consider the horrors of social media, at least kind of the, everybody has a voice, but it does allow for the growth of technology. And then the decreasing amount of costs that happen to be able to get us, the, you know, it's unbelievable. So as many of you know, uh, your iPhone holds a billion times more information than a whole IBM mainframe just not that many decades ago. I mean, it's just extraordinary. He had basically predicted on that graph, and he ultimately says, I disagree with this, by the way, because we're created in the image of God, and we understand that soul, call it consciousness if you want to, that's what secular people call it, but what makes you distinctively you is your consciousness, but what we know it to be is a soul. So I am not my body. I am not just a function of my physical synapses in my brain, etc. I am actually an individual created in the image of God, which is what we saw last week with Jeremiah. I knew you, Jeremiah, while you were yet in your mother's womb. Kurzweil says this about pattern recognition. 
And it's important to understand. By the way, he predicted what he would refer to as the great singularity when both biology and technology would merge. And essentially what that means is that someday we would have, we would have computers or technology that would, in a sense, become a, just exactly like a human brain. Now, obviously, I disagree with that. There's self-awareness, and, but they said, no, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And, of course, we're calling that artificial intelligence now. And uh, is there something that would, and they would call it emergent consciousness that would even come out of a robot, for example. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. However, this is fascinating. Listen to what he says in Psychology Today, an article that was written many years ago. Pattern recognition, according to the IQ test designers, is a key determinant of a person's potential to think logically, verbally, numerically, and spatially. Compared to all the other mental abilities, pattern recognition is said to have the highest correlation with the so-called general intelligence factor. Okay, and if you so to sum that up is that our ability to spot patterns or differentiations, but especially pattern recognition, where we can see this is not like the other, this has a similar uh, pattern. And when you can detect that, those who can detect patterns have usually the highest IQ. In fact, the Mensa IQ test is predicated on trying to discover patterns. Your ability to determine and differentiate and understand patterns has everything to do with it. Now listen to this, and this is my great source. I, I love this guy. I've never met him. His name's Wikipedia, and Wikipedia, <laughs> I've never met him, but anyway, listen to what Wikipedia says, and obviously it's based on some of Kurzweil's uh, uh, things, but it says, Kurzweil's main thesis is that these hierarchical pattern recognizers, now please understand, this. I know it's a little, it's a little bit esoteric, but it's not are used not just for the sensing the world, but for nearly all aspect of thought. Now, if that's true, and I do think it's true, and I would even say for spiritual thought, and that's going to be why I'm doing all this, is so that you can understand that a pattern that we see in Jeremiah's ministry, then I see a pattern that's in Jesus' ministry, has import for us in the 21st century where we can actually walk into a pattern. But listen to why he says pattern detection, pattern recognition is so important. Please catch this. For example, Kurtzweil says memory recall is based on the same patterns that were, uh, that were used when sensing the world in the very first place. Kurtzweil says that learning is critical to human intelligence. A computer version of the neocortex would initially be like a newborn baby, unable to do much, only through repeated exposure to patterns would it eventually self-organize and become functional. Now, what does that have to do with Jeremiah? I think a lot, because what the Lord does, that it's been my experience in the Word, is give us a cyclicality of patterns that, by the way, are also continuously growing. It's not a new revelation, 
but it's a new unveiling of what has been written before as time progresses. In other words, we know a lot more than Jeremiah knew during his time. The Christ event has occurred. It was going to be the suffering servant and the king, you know, a king mounted on a donkey that, we, that I went through a few weeks ago. He couldn't have seen that. He talked about it. He, he even lived it out in his life in various ways. And over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to show you some very intricate patterns in the life of Jeremiah that were mirrored in the life of Jesus. And rather than just a history lesson, there are things that I then want mirrored in my own life. And as I am able to detect these patterns, by extension now we, if we can detect these patterns, what does he say? It eventually is going to allow us to be, what? Self-organized and functional. In other words, we're all on the same page. Most people I meet, they, they you say this, and I, I, I watch videos all the time. It's how I learn. I'm constantly, without any pattern, without an understanding of a, a general narrative of Scripture, how are we functional? It's just like people don't even know what this is at all. It's a revelation of Jesus. But what is that? It's a revelation of the gospel. Yes, it's all those things. And it's so beautiful. And it works together. Over 40 authors, 66 books written over about a 1,500-year period of time. It's an extraordinary thing. And again, as I've told you before, it gives me such confidence, an intellectual anchor, as I see the beauty and the integrity of the design, not just of creation, because there's pattern in creation, but pattern in the Word of God, starting in Genesis and culminating in Revelation. Oh, well, just a bunch of guys in pointy hats. Years later, hundreds of years later, put together this artificial thing and mythologized Jesus, and they have no idea what they're talking about. If they had the intellect, and by this, now remember, I don't, this is not me patting myself on the back as some intellect, but through the Holy Spirit, we should be able to begin to ingest these patterns and understand exactly and precisely what God's trying to say about your life why you're here, and who you are, and why you matter. Because many people will wake up today, and they'll just eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die, not recognizing that there was not only order in their design, but there's order in their future if they tap into it in Jesus. And the more we can determine patterns in life and through the Word, the more we can get a picture of it, and we can, well, we can become functional. Does that make sense? You have to be able to understand what it is you're doing when you say, I'm following Jesus. What does that even look like? There's all kinds of charlatans out there that are saying, well, this is what God says, and this is what God says, and this is what God says. And not only just in all the religions all over the world, but just even in Christianity at times, there are just all this... And say, no, it has to always plug back into these general patterns. And if they do... I can smell it. You know what it smells like? It smells like authenticity. That's what it smells like to me. It smells like authenticity. And you can begin to smell immediately. 
You know why people fall into cults that talk about Jesus and open the Bible and the David Koresh's and all that of the world? Because they haven't been able to determine any kind of pattern in the Bible and they are subject to any kind of charlatan or any kind of false Christ who would claim to be a Christ-like figure in some way, a messianic, anointed you know, figure, and they'll follow anybody. But if we understand the patterns, it will give us a solidity to our faith that will force us always back to the highway of holiness. Does that make sense? So this, this is why I'm taking the time. Uh, again, let's read Luke chapter 19. This is not just a random event. It fits in so beautifully. The way I see it, it fits in so beautifully as a prefiguring, that would, something that would have been prefigured by Jeremiah. And of course, I could go all the way back to Moses and the time of the prophets. Luke 19, again, where are we? Jesus, last week of his life, he's already come down. He's, he's come down through the Kidron Valley on a, mounted on a donkey. If you were here, you saw that. Hopefully you can go back and always watch those. I would encourage you to do that. It'll give you, I think, some great insight into what we're talking about here. Luke 19, verse 41. We read this last week. We're going to go into it again. When he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept over it. You know, we are, we are incapable of reaching the Coachella Valley unless this would define us emotively. Do you weep over this valley? Or are you, or are you just, oh, or just always talking about how bad it is or how far from God it is? Or do you weep over men and women created in the image of God that either deny His existence or are running from Him, feel shame, feel guilt. The Bible says, and they may be offended. I don't care. I know the word is incredibly offensive. The gospel is a rock of, it's a rock of offense, man. It just, you're enslaved to a life of meaninglessness. So he wept over it. He says, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. So what we're trying to determine is what would make for peace. For Jerusalem, they were about to be overrun by the Babylonians. Jesus is prophesying this overrunning by the Babylonians that would happen some 40 years later under the armies of Titus. This is an exacting prophecy. Sidebar note here, people always say, oh, this is, you know, the, all these letters were written by people and it wasn't written by the gospel authors, etc., etc. What's fascinating to me is that Jesus prophesied this, but not one of these letters, if they had a real late date, they would have known that Jerusalem was sacked. Not one of them mentioned the sacking of Jerusalem, which gives us a lot of grounding for understanding an early dating to many of these letters and that they were canonical, meaning they led back to the original disciples and apostles and aren't just some kind of strange, emergent you know, dogma and mythology that arose hundreds of years later. Not one of them even mentioned the sacking of Jerusalem, except Jesus prophetically, because he's weeping over it, because he's about to say, you, I wish you understood. And in Matthew 23, as we look, I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, and you wouldn't have it. You didn't understand the things that make for peace. Just like our valley, so many people, they don't understand the things that make for peace. And one day, Jesus is going to come back triumphantly 
but he's not going to overthrow. I mean, this is not going to be this is not going to be the Babylonians overthrowing. It's not going to be the Romans overthrowing. It's going to be Jesus, the anointed Messiah, but he's not going to be on a donkey. And he then will overthrow all of insurrection and the wrath of God will be poured out and so that we will have new heavens and a new earth. And the elements will melt with intense heat. And that's part of the gospel. You say, well, that, don't say that. That, that. We're not supposed to scare people. It's terrifying to fall into the hands of a living God, the Bible says. What a terrifying thing. He says, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave you in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus is predicting what would happen 40 years later. And historically, we know that to be a fact. I mean, this is not just like some made-up thing. Unlike the Greek pantheon of gods and all these, you know, all these, this is, Christianity is grounded in a histor- in an, an historical reality. And if you've ever been with me to Israel, it changes people's lives when they're walking. They go, oh, this is where Jesus walked. Oh, this is where he was mocked and scourged in the Roman praetorium. Oh my gosh, this is uh, Mary Magdalene. This is Magdala. This is a first century ten- uh, synagogue. He probably was taught on these very tiles. I mean, it shakes you to your core. We know that this happened. And then secondly, which we won't get today, but I want you to continue to meditate on this. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. Do you think that's any different today? You know, we live in, an, uh, we live in somewhat of a... This is an anomaly, the West. The United States... In our lifetime, it's an anomaly that we haven't been more persecuted than we have. It's just really strange. I always wonder, I wonder if I'll be in prison one day because preaching the gospel and it'll be seen as hate speech or I don't know what. I, I wonder if one day that would be the case. But we've lived under a time where, I mean, it almost feels like, well, Jesus, I don't know that, you know, kind of over-exaggerated that in John 3 as he's having this conversation with Nicodemus, he says, darkness hates the light. And then, of course, I wonder, well, am I even a a conduit of light? It's like one of my uh, my friends told me, uh, Tim Philpott, who's been with us before, uh, was on our board for a long time at Lynx and was a state Kentucky and a, a judge. He says, you know, I read about all these guys, you know, around the world and Everywhere they go, they're put in prison, they're stoned, they're, 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 they're killed, you know. How many Ethiopian pastors will be killed this week? We just don't hear about it. We're just like, well, you know, <laughs> I got to go to church, it's too late, it's too early. So, you know, we just, it's an anomaly. We ha- it's like a shell. We have this bubble that doesn't feel like what Jesus was talking about. In John 15, he says, they persecute me. They hate me, they're going to hate you. And we don't feel hated. So Tim says, I look around and everywhere I go and speak, you know, I hear about these pastors being killed and everywhere I go, they offer me a cup of tea, you know. It doesn't seem, it seems like a, that's not my experience, really. 
I mean, I've, I've been persecuted, yes, and socially ostracized in various places, but I've never been killed or sawn in two. I mean, get, at least the last time I checked. You know, or John 17 in the high priestly prayer. He's saying, Father, I've given them your word and the world is going to hate them for it. Or Paul to the Galatians, those things born of the flesh persecute those things born of the Spirit. Timothy, Paul told Timothy, those who desire a godly life will be persecuted. And I wonder about that at times. I really do. I mean, yeah, I've been, there comes that guy, and I've had, I mean, I've had people yell things at me and say things about me and things like that, but not what I would really associate with anything I see Certainly in the life of Jeremiah, as we will see, and certainly not in the life of Jesus, or for that matter, all the prophets. So I wonder, what, what does the Lord want for us in this moment of time? If we are in a bubble, for what purpose? We got lucky, we got blessed. Or is it so that we have the freedom to do what we're doing right now and we can advance the march of the gospel from this relative peace place called America? And it's changing, by the way. But while before the do doors completely close around us in persecution, if that happens in our lifetime, I don't know. But before that happens, we'll be, be launching out and being a light to the nations and in Matthew 24, he says, you're going to be hated by all nations on account of my name. And I think most of us in our experience would go, I just, I can't relate to that. You know, I have people that might not, if I invite them, might not come to the tour outreach. But they don't turn around and, you know, try to stab me. I know this is, seems like a, a, a buzzkill. Uh, I realize that. But I just want us to, to, Lord, why are we here? Why do you want us on Jefferson and 49th? Why? Why this time? Shouldn't we just take our beanie weenies and flashlights and go into a cave? Or get an enclave where we can all just live together and be happy and sing Kumbaya? Or no, because I've called you to be a light. And that was that first worship song. Be a light. Go for it. But we live in an age of convenience. And I'm telling you, the American experiment, is, at least in this last 50 to 100 years, is an anomaly in the world. And if you've traveled, even in Europe or where you've seen, man, it's a different world. What would it be like to be a pastor in the Ukraine? Or for that matter, the underground church in North Korea or you just go down a list of people and pastors and believers who right now, today, are spending and will spend the rest of their life, however long it is, imprisoned in a pit, in a hole, in a dark place for the name of Jesus. I almost wonder at times, and I've told you this before, but my, mom, my mother used to go on some prayer walks years ago with her other little group of gals, and which was so odd to me. I think she was in her 70s at the time, now they're into their 80s, but 
in the 70s, and they would go with just this little group, I don't know, three, four women, whatever, and they, they didn't just go to Hong Kong. They'd go and take a train, take you forever, and get way back into western China where it was dangerous. And they would do prayer walks through these cities and engage with the underground church. And, and I'll never forget, forgive me for repeating this, but if I have, but I will never forget, she said, the church in China, the underground church, they felt such pity for America. Because how easy it was just to kind of go to church and do the thing. And it, they had to, they knew their whole life was utterly and totally dependent upon Jesus every day, even to live. And they thought they had the blessing. And then in some ways, America, you'd think, oh, they'd all want to depart and go to America where there's freedom of religion. They can, you know. Go to get some Shakey's pizza afterwards or something, you know. And again, I, please don't, I don't have a critical spirit here. I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have. I hope that they continue throughout my life and the life of my kids and my grandkids. But for what purpose? So that we can effectively mourn. So uh, again, last week we looked at Jeremiah and the calling on his life that God knew him while he was in his mother's womb. And yet... What, and so we looked at this, oh, wow, this is an amazing calling, a prophet to the nations, just like Jesus was prophesied. There would be a prophet in Deuteronomy 18. God told Moses that I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, similar to you. So Moses also prefigured Jesus. He came out of Egypt. He led people out. He went to the baptism, went in the wilderness, went in, went in and started his ministry, just like Jesus did. Don't think that's, there's another pattern. We talk about it all the time, right? Pattern recognition. That helps me. It helps me talking to people about Jesus. Look, you're going to have to come out of Egypt. I don't say Egypt. You're going to have to come out of your old life. We need to get you baptized. You need to be filled with the Spirit. Then you're going to go into the wilderness. Then you need to be discipled. And you need to be trained into what it is to be like Jesus. And eventually you need to cross the Jordan and move into your calling using your gift in context of a missional community. If I didn't have that pattern, I'd just be like, I don't know what to preach on this week. Maybe just God wants to help you with your life. I mean, I just, but that pattern recognition helps. And this is exactly what happened. So Jeremiah is a pattern for Jesus. And Jesus, just like Jeremiah, Jeremiah had become an enemy of the state, even though he was called to be a prophet, just like Jesus. In spite of that, again, he lived, again, as I alluded to last week, he lived through the reign of five different kings, only one relatively righteous, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, 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 and then finally Zedekiah, and then a non-king, but a governor, Gedaliah. And they were all just a horrible finish to their lives, except for Josiah. Josiah was murdered at the end, but the other ones were ruthless and, and not God followers. And this, this was his task? That's a hard place to be. He watched as Judah slowly and steadily walked into the path of utter destruction. Just like Jesus here. After a siege that lasted about 30 months, Zedekiah, after a failed alliance with Egypt, Pharaoh Hophra, was captured and had to watch his own son slaughtered before his eyes and then have his own eyes gouged out. King Zedekiah. Finally, Jeremiah, in the end of his life, is even forced out of Judah and against his will, because he had been telling them the remnant that was left after the Babylonians had destroyed him, don't go to Egypt, don't go to Egypt, plant, be right here in the middle of this Babylonian captivity, have a family, 
be a light. God's going to restore it in 70 years, all this. And they just turned their backs and they went down to Egypt and said, if you go to Egypt, you're going to be destroyed. And eventually they were. The vast majority of them were destroyed, including, according to tradition, Jeremiah, who would have been stoned in Egypt. It seemed to be so promising. I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah. I knew you. I consecrated you. You know, uh, don't say that you're a youth because I'm going to put words in your mouth. Don't be afraid of them. Behold, I have made you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah must have been thinking, wonderful. And then an enemy of the state. His entire ministry, and he ministered for over 40 years. Much longer than Jesus. Jesus' total ministry, once he started after coming out of the wilderness, three, three and a half years. Jeremiah, over 40 years of being punched in the gut and hated, and his own countrymen denying that he was a real prophet, and they blamed it all on him. And that he was actually in cahoots with the Babylonians, was, was the accusation at various points. Sounded, kind of sounds like Jesus again. And quite frankly, it kind of sounds like a lot of people that are doing ministry work around the world today. Do you detect a pattern? So let's start here, Jeremiah 4. Don't freak out. We're coming to a close here. I, I, I don't mean we're starting like today. You know, I, I, I know you have places to go and people to see, but let's, let's at least get through this passage. Would you bear with me? Jeremiah chapter 4. Again, think about this. Jeremiah was put as a prophet to prophesy all the way into the Babylonian captivity. Don't, don't partner with Egypt. Live under the Babylonians. You know, was considered an enemy of the state. All this. Jesus, same thing. Kemp comes in, hated by his countrymen, most of them, most secular and religious Jews. Not all, obviously, because many Jews followed him, and that became the early church. Jews were the foundation of the early church. But for the most part, he was rejected, he was thrown out, he, was, he experienced a pit, as we'll see next week too, right? Just like Jeremiah, Jeremiah's thrown into a pit, Jesus thrown into a pit under Caiaphas' house. The, again, pattern recognition. And then us, to go into a place where, you know, our own countrymen, potential Americans here that we love and mourn over, and they will see us as an enemy of the state. That is increasing in our day, big time. Considered an enemy of the state. Enemy of the state. Breaks my heart. And yet they both continue to do ministry and love the people that were persecuting them. And that's why Jesus says you must pray for those who are persecuting you. You must love your enemy. Have you ever wondered why it's so easy to persecute Christians? Because at least by design and by our understanding is that when we're hated, it's easy. It's not, there's no risk to persecuting a Christian because if they're actually a believer, a follower of Jesus, they will love you in return. They'll turn the other cheek. They'll pray for you. They'll continue to ask you to dinner. They'll continue to ask you to go to some silly, you know, not silly, but you know, outreach with pe golfers, people chasing balls into holes. I mean, all this kind of thing, you know? And then we're called to pray. That's really not the case with Islam. You say, well, why is nobody really harshly critical? Well, the reaction there is that you do the Lord's work if you turn and you, you know, it's, it's not a good result if you criticize Islam. 
Are you, does that make sense? I mean, that's just the reality. We will be persecuted. And we will bless them all the way to the stake. You know, how many people did that? Wycliffe and all these guys, the translators of the Bible, and some of these. Go back and study church history. It's phenomenal. It's awesome. People with the spirit of Jeremiah and the spirit of Jesus. So this was Jeremiah's heart. Jeremiah 4, verse 19. My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart. Jeremiah, prophet of the nations, I'll, don't worry, I'm going to put my... And he's having, he's just, but he's pouring out his soul to God here. My heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent. Do you feel that way about the gospel? I want to feel that way. In any and every situation, I cannot be silent. I have to be judicious. I have to be wise. I have to be as shrewd as a serpent. I have to be innocent as a dove. I have to do it in a winsome way. I have to do it in a compelling way. Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. All those things have to be true. I have to do it in a generous and courteous and kind and compassionate way. But I cannot be silent. Jesus wasn't. His disciples were like, don't go down that road. Don't go down that road. That's a bad decision. And Jesus could not be silent. Jeremiah could not be silent. I want that. I need that. Because you have heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Now for them, it was the Babylonians. For Jesus, it was weeping over the city, knowing the Romans were coming. For us, it's knowing that Jesus is coming back. And that he will set all things right. Revelation 20 simply says in 19, Jesus soared out of his mouth, waging war against the nations. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know that's coming. If you're watching on television or something, I'm telling you that's coming. And you'll, people are going to want to get teachers around and say, well, don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. It's, as a guy that I went to college with, Vody Bauckham said once, it's a fool's errand to imagine that Jesus is not going to come back and set all things right. You can argue, you're in this place where you can criticize and be an atheist and hate anything to do with Jesus. You can hate it. But it's a fool's errand to imagine that it's always going to be, that, be the case. Disaster on disaster is proclaimed, verse 20. The whole land is devastated. Suddenly my tents are devastated. My curtains in an instant. That was his case under the Babylonians when Jesus comes back. For Jesus, the case was Titus and his armies. For us, the case, and Peter says it well, the elements are going to melt with intense heat. And the Savior, on a, not a donkey, but a white horse, whether literally or symbolically, will come back and a sword will be coming out of his mouth and he'll judge the world, judge the word, the world with the word that he has already spoken and that word he has spoken is here. You want to know what it's going to be like? It, it tells you. Pattern recognition. We know it's going to be the case. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. For him it was his countrymen. It was the what was left, the Israelites. They had already seen the northern ten tribes wiped out by the Assyrians, and now the Babylonians are coming. 
They know me not. Jeremiah's words, not mine. They're stupid children. They don't have any understanding. They are shrewd to do evil. But to do good, to do good, they don't know anything about that. And then lastly this morning, again, please understand the spirit of what we're saying. I want the heartbeat of Jeremiah. Unwillingness to be silent, but but a willingness to be persecuted and love those who persecute me and care for them. For him, 40 plus years. Cannot imagine what he went through. He was despised, imprisoned, thrown into a muddy cistern. And then again in Jeremiah 8, and we'll close with this. My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land of the Lord, not in Zion. Is her king not within her? Why have they provoked me with their graven image? He's talking about his own people with foreign idols. Harvest is past, summer is ended, and we're not saved. The brokenness of the daughter of my people, for that I am broken, I mourn. Dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? He, he's praying this. He's crying out to God. He says, you know, you told me I was going to be this great prophet and you're going to, I'm going to pluck up and tear down in terms of nations. And he does at the end of Jeremiah. He talks, he prophesies about, you know, all the nations around them from Egypt to Babylon to, you know, Edom and Ammonites. And he prophesies. So he is, he plucks up and tears down, but his whole life is misery, and he almost saw no fruit. And yet God, he was amazing. (laughs) He was amazing. So in closing, even though Jesus and Jeremiah were hated by the ruling class, both secular and religious, they still cared for those same people. They confronted them, but they loved them. Jeremiah wept over the state of his people. Jesus wept over the state of of his people. Will we, Church at the Red Door, weep over the state of our people? So next week, we're going to even take a deeper dive, now that you have this foundation laid, for an understanding of pattern recognition and Jeremiah and Jesus. And of course, we could lay this out in many different, through many different prophets' lives. But specifically, we're going to see some extraordinary and extraordinary specifics that relate to the life of Jeremiah and Jesus. And then, my friends, by extension, us. It's informative. It helps me in the 21st century.